You are now listening to Testimonies with Terry. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to Testimonies with Terry. I'm your host, Terry Skaggs. Make sure to give me a follow at TWTerryPod across social media. Today, I'm talking to a guy who's turned a life full of trauma and addiction into a ministry, where he's teaching people how to recover from their traumas and addictions and live a promised land life. A brother dying at a young age, not receiving healthy love from his parents, experiencing sexual abuse, battling with addictions to alcohol and drugs, and attempting suicide multiple times, this man has been through a lot in his life. Finally, finding freedom and a renewed purpose in Jesus, you'll hear how he's now being the hands and feet of Jesus in his community as he helps men be awakened to their true identity in God. He's known as the Tattooed Pastor. Ladies and gentlemen, this is George A. Wood's Testimony. All right, guys. Well, I'm excited because on today's show, we have pastor, recovery advocate, and co-author of The Uncovery, Understanding the Power of Community to Heal Trauma, George A. Wood. George, thanks for coming on the show, man. Yeah, man. Thank you for for having me, man. This is is awesome to just be able to sit and, and talk about life, man. I love it. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Uh, we connected through Trevor Tyson. I interviewed him uh, for an episode on this coming season of the podcast, and he sent me your information, and he said, you should check this guy out. And so I was telling you before we hit record, I, I bought the book, The Uncovery, and I didn't even get through mm-hmm. the first chapter, and I reached back out to Trevor. I'm just like, yeah, I need him on my podcast. Like Your story <laughs> is, is pretty wild, and, and Jesus is all in it. So I'm excited to, to get into that with you today. Yeah, thank you. It's it's been a wild ride, man. It's it's definitely been a wild ride, especially it's funny because you got the, the two bookends. You got the the broken start and then the, this past couple months with the book coming out has been pretty just been wild, man. It's just been wild. <laughs> well, let's uh let's get into the story here, man. Where did you grow up, George? Yeah, I actually, you know, grew up in upstate New York, but my mother and father divorced when I was in, you know, kindergarten and my father moved down to Florida. Um, and I ended up spending summers down here with him and the rest of the time in upstate New York with my mother. Um, so there was sort of, you know, I'd spend a lot of time down here in Florida where I am now and, and the majority of the time up in New York with my mother back when I was growing up. Okay. And how old were you when your parents divorced? You know, um, kindergarten, first grade, whatever age you are. I just remember that, um, you know, my father had left my mother for a much younger woman, which, you know, ended up being this sort of the, the reason that I ended up, you know, feeling, um, unwanted or unloved in my own family dynamic. And, you know, a lot of that had to do with a lot of 
older brothers and sisters, you know, there was eight years in between us. And so me being the last one, my father felt like he didn't want to raise any more kids and he'd done his part. And so him leaving my, you know, my mother for this other woman, you know, I sort of was looked at as this focal point of why everything fell apart. And so I felt that internally as, as a, as a child, and, you know, at the same time, I was in, you know, first grade and I ended up um, getting held back in first grade because I had missed, you know, a lot of school and everything. And it was just a very traumatic time. And my my brother, my, my oldest brother had died on a construction accident that my father was running. Um, so that first that you, that time period between kindergarten and first grade marked me for the rest of my life. Um you know, without a doubt, I can still look at that and see things that happened that, um, you know, perpetually led to more and more the cycles of, you know, shame and abuse and trauma and shame and abuse and trauma. And, um, you know, it all began right there. Yeah, man, George, what was that like losing your brother at such a young age? Yeah, you know, it, 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 nobody's ever asked me that. And it's, yeah, I'm glad you did because, um, my brother, like I said, he had left with my father and, uh, you know, when he was, you know, the oldest and the firstborn. And so him, when he passed away, um, obviously that destroyed you know, my brother, my, my mother and my father and my other brother and everybody in the whole family just didn't know how to handle that. But what was, interesting is a few months before he actually died, he had been in a really bad car accident where him and my other brother had almost died. Um, they both were in a coma for a long time and, um, he had survived and then only to die a couple months later on a construction site. So as a, as a kid, I first went through that first round of, Oh, your brothers might be dead to, um, Oh, now one of them is dead. And, and, that really messed with my ability to understand, um, you know, traumatic news. I mean, it, it's almost like to protect myself, I developed the ability to hear bad news and almost it gave me the ability to stand outside myself. Okay. And, and, and sort of witness what was happening as if it might not be true. And to this day, because that happened at such a young age, I still, I've learned how to use it in my benefit. I don't, I don't, you know, I can hear traumatic news and, and, and tend to be okay, you know, stay calm and, and, and deal with the situation, but I'm really just shutting down part of myself. And so when my brother did die, I was shutting that part of me down because it had almost happened before, like months before, which was fresh in my young mind. And so there was always this, I, I just never really took it as being real. It, it came across as, is this even happening? Um, and so I think that really also marked, you know, how I am able to handle bad news even to this day. No, that makes sense. And I think a lot of how people respond to trauma uh, goes along with how the family responds to mm -hmm. trauma, right? So when, when your brother yeah. passed, how did your family respond to that? Well, you know, we are, we, you know, I'm 53. Okay. So I'm a little bit older and 
we don't realize just how far as a society we've come when it comes to counseling, therapy, and understanding of the need for these things. I mean, back in early 1981, this this is when this happened, right? This was not what people talked about. That was still very much the age of stuff your feelings, you know, you don't show your emotions, or if you do in some way, it's because of uh, a gender issue, you you know, so there, there wasn't this healthy way of handling things. And so um, my father just went into this dark depression, which honestly, he never came out of um, his entire, you know, the, he died a few years back, but he never, he never recovered. Um, he went into drugs and alcohol and just stopped being caring about anything. Um, he, he worked and, and still was a, you know, he wasn't like a homeless, he didn't end up becoming homeless or something of that bad, but he, he definitely stopped caring about anything. Um, you know, life had stopped at that point for him. And, my, you know, my mother, you know, really went into that. She really, because now you got to figure she's dealing with um, the divorce, the the loss of her husband, her first love, uh, whatever, at the same time as losing her child. So for her, I mean, it, it was, you know, multiplied as um, what had just happened. And so she went into you know, a lot of the same, you know, types of addiction, mental health issues, um, that you might see, we saw in my father and, um, that you'd see in a person that's not mentally, you know, stable or healthy. Yeah. And so you got both parents grieving, uh, you know, probably in different ways, but at the root negative ways, right. Unhealthy ways, I should say, how did that affect you then George, as, as you went about your childhood, what was that like? Yeah. So, you know, I think as human beings, we are created by, you know, Father God to be in relationship. And there's this, this, um, there is an understanding internally that we are meant and created to be loved and to be um, accepted and to be seen. And so we will go for that no matter what. And so, I had two parents that were, I've now gotten to the point where I can say I'm capable of saying, um, I forgive them and I understand what was happening. But then I didn't. All I knew was I um, was continually cursed at, you know, told that I was a, you know, horrible, whatever, doomed to hell, um, this massive inconvenience or not acknowledged at all. So I'd come to my dad's house And literally, you know, he lived out in a rural area on a lake and he would leave in the morning for work and come home at night. And I'd just be left there all alone all day, um, every single day. And you're, you know, as a child, you're, you're grap, you you know, you're, you don't know how to understand your parents are jacked up. So you think it's you. And so, you know, because we have, you know, we, they, there's the God complex where we, we, we think our parents must be God. They're, they must be right. And so, um, we think they're good, you know, people like this is good. My, my father lives on a lake and he, um, has a boat, but meanwhile, he doesn't talk to me the entire summer or, you know, doesn't talk to me in a good way. And so I was very, you know, abandoned, in, in both, in both, you know, realities, the one where my father didn't speak to me at all, or the one where my mother was just continually psychologically abusing me 
um, because she's dealing with her own, her own issues. So that caused me to um, think of how could I somehow, um, you know, appease them somehow make them see that I'm worthy. Um, and, and honestly, you know, at a very young age, um, ended up becoming sexually abused and, you know, you know, perpetuating sexual abuse on others and, um, began to live through this lens of, um, physical and sexual attraction at a very, very, you know, young age. And so, Anything and everything I could do in order to get some form of attention is how I ended up living, you know, um, the next many, many years of my life out. Yeah, no, and that makes sense. Seeking attention, why you, you know, kind of went to the sexual side of things. But I mean, even before that, the sexual abuse, man, I working as a marriage and family therapist, it is so, I don't know what the word is, but it, to me, it's kind of mind blowing how common this actually is for mm -hmm. people to have suffered some type of sexual abuse in their life. And especially people that are, you know, that I see that are in their fifties or sixties, even seventies. And I'm like the first one that they've ever told that this is, this had happened. And so it's such a common tragedy that happens to mm -hmm. people. Talk to us a little bit yeah. more, George, how did, how did that even come about? And uh, talk to us how that uh, affected how you viewed yourself or maybe even how you viewed women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, so my brother that ended up still being alive um, was, you know, 20, 21 years old. Right. And so him going into his own thing and he was very much a womanizer and my father was with different women. And so to, you know, for them at a young age telling me I needed to have sex and, you know, you need to, you know, whatever derogatory terms you want to use. So thinking like, and I'm talking like at fifth and sixth grade. So, because you have all these unhealthy people that don't know what, you know, how to like actually see a young child as a child and, and understand the ramifications. So I, I, you see that aspect of it, but then on the other side, you know, I'm back home with my mother who's now, you know, she's seeking, you know, male companionship from whomever she can. So it's just her and I at home and different men in and out. And so seeing that side of it and seeing the side of my father and my brother. So these two sides of things, um, and then, you know, my mother, because she's constantly out all the time or trying to find a way to fill this brokenness in her, um, just anybody that could come and stay with me, you know, to like babysit or whatever you want to call it or whatever. And so, I, there was an older, you know, guy that ended up babysitting me that ended up sexually abusing me when I was in middle school, which, then, you know, you see the, the, the ramifications of, okay, you know, I have this, um, very fem you know, you're supposed to be with these females and the role that my brother and my father are playing with all these different women. And then this happens to me. So it's like, okay, what does that say about me? I have to somehow make up for this. And so, um, at a very young age, getting sexually active with, you know, girls in my grade or other, you know, girls, any girls that I could, in fifth and sixth grade. And eventually because of that, it's almost like a predator, um, can see this in you 
And so then when I was 12, I ended up having my father's girlfriend slip into bed with me one night when he was drunk, passed out, and have sex with me. And so really the only way that I could rationalize things in my head as a 12-year-old was um, I, I must be a conquest because after what had happened to me with my being sexually abused by a male, then for this to happen, this sort of showed me that I wasn't gay or attracted to men. That, okay, this woman, this older woman, she was 30, I was 12. So I must be doing the right thing. So, and it was, you know, my father's girlfriend. And so to me, it was, I had to rationalize it in some way. And that was, it ended up being a conquest where, you know, instead of in any logical way, um, thinking like this is wrong or whatnot, but more or less being in fear that my father, who already didn't talk to me, he's going to think of it as another guy that just slept with his girlfriend and, and so, you know, just all these scenarios in my head, which ended up paving the way. So not that any of it was harmless, but it was all harmful, but paving the way for what ends up being an adult life of really, really getting into um, sexually deviant, whatever you want to call it, you know, um, for many, many years. And that literally being the only way I knew how to um, really accept any type of confirmation, you know, for my, for love or value or worth, but it was always at the extent of um, harming other people or, you know, um, definitely not caring about or being capable of um, being a loving or caring individual on any way, shape or form or in any way, shape or form. Yeah, man. I mean, you you can just see the events that led to your idea of what love is and what worth is and what attention is, how that all got so skewed uh, because of what you were seeing around you, first and foremost, and then what had mm -hmm. happened to you. You mentioned, George, feeling like the outcast and not being able to connect with people. What were friendships like for you growing up? Was it a struggle to connect with with friends in school, with people in school? What was that like for you? You know, it was very. Um, I look back on that, and and often actually because it's just, there's just so much pain in in my my life where um, I just wanted to be loved or accepted by anyone that I could. And so I actually ended up, it played out with me trying to, I was constantly trying to have people come and spend the night at my house or, you know, just, but not real relationship, just like literally anybody that I could for, for one, because my house was a lot to me was representative, representative of like hell, because it was a scary old house that, you know, I was always left alone in as my mother went out and didn't know when she'd come home and I would be terrified. So constantly trying to have like friends come over and, and didn't matter if I was in relationship or whatever. It just was like, Hey, you want to come and spend the night or whatever. And seeking, you know, relationship, anything, anything goes at our house or whatever, but not really these people didn't really care about me or like me. So then, you know, the next day they wouldn't be friends with you. So it's this constant, like friends, one moment, not the next friends, one moment, not in the next. And, and 
it on your psyche as a counselor now i can look at that and be like you know i can see the effects of that and i can see the ramifications of that but it, it, you know i tried i was very much the extrovert very much the um part, life of the party you got to have a party you got to have people over type of guy but yet at the end of the day it's like you know i don't have a single relationship from before i got sober and have jesus in my life you know, I don't have any because I didn't know how to have authentic, real relationships. And I even still feel weird if when somebody from like my hometown or something to reach out on Facebook, because it's like, I know who I was back then. And that was just such a broken, screwed up person. And, you know, that it just takes, it's like, you know, a time traveling back to a land before I was, and I don't want to go there. So it was, you know, it was very, very difficult for me in in actual relationships, but to be the life of a party is a different thing. And so as a counselor, you know that. We see that as family genomes play out and the roles that we play. And um, it's usually as a protective measure that was the one thing that could keep me um, sane or, or feeling, you know, protected or safe, even safe, even, you know. Yeah, yeah. You you use the word broken uh, a, a lot right there, George. How did you cope with that brokenness? We we all try to f- find something to fill that those empty spaces, that brokenness that we're feeling. How other than maybe the the womanizing, you know, sex things like that. How did you cope with the brokenness? Yeah, um, I actually was a, a fairly decent athlete, and so I was very much you know the. So I had a mom that was never home, so I could constantly have parties at my house, but I was, you know, captain of the football team and the wrestling team and, and track team. And, and so I, I would, I excelled at sports, excelled at, you know, having, you know, sexual relationships and, um, started drinking, you know, early on, you know, teenage years, whatnot, and then ended up, you know, getting injured and having, um, multiple knee surgeries and in end of high school, beginning of college, which ended up leading the way to pain pills. And so really my addictions started there, you know, the drinking and sex sports, high school end up being injured. And then that paved the way for pills and drinking still was able to go to college, still was able to hold it together uh, more or less um, for the, you know, the college years um, but it, there was a lot of drinking and a lot of, a lot of drugs and a lot of, you know, of course the sex part of it, but that was it. That was how I held it together. It would, I was always good at excelling at what I could focus on in the moment. And so I could do really good even after college, getting into the business world, like I could do something for a short amount of time. I was an extremist. I was very much excel at that. And and that worked for me up until, you know, I had a nervous breakdown at 30. And up until that point, that's what had worked for me. I could, I got married to, to a woman, to the woman I wanted to marry. And, um, you know, was successful at doing the things that I was doing and made some money. And, um, you know, even though living this double life of being, you know, totally wrecked with, you know, shame and a false identity, not knowing who I was and um, trying to hide it. So the rest of the world didn't figure that out. Yeah. 
Yeah. Let's unpack some of that here, George. So you got a knee injury and was that in high school or college? Both. I ended up hurting it in high school and then re-injuring it in, in college. Oh, man. And so got pain pills, uh, became addicted to the pain pills. Kind of walk us through that. I mean, this is kind of the, the, the genesis of this part of your struggle, right? The addiction mm-hmm. part. Yeah. Talk us through that. How did that all start? Yeah. I. You know, so first, my coming from a family of drinkers and partiers, I mean, I would be, you know, in... My brother sold, was selling cocaine and and going to law school when I was, you know, uh, in grade school. So I would see with piles of cocaine on a triple beam. So my father would constantly have cocaine and, and drugs. So that was very much like they came from, you know, the 70s and early 80s era of, you know, rolling stones and you do cocaine and party all night and then go to work the next day. So that was very much my childhood family-wise. So seeing that and being like, okay, yes, some people do this and they're able to, you know, do, do life and succeed as well. So, um, it wasn't a stretch for me to think it was okay. And so in fact, it was more like, uh, almost, um, an insult on your manlyhood if you couldn't do it in my family. Okay. So, you know, it was, I was never told not to drink or do drugs by my dad. I was always told, do what you're big enough to do. You know, that was more his thing. It's like, never got told no, just do what you're big enough to do. Make sure, you know, whatever you can handle, do it. That type of mantra. Right. So, um, getting, you know, drinking and, and doing, you know, even the pain pills were great because that was the first time that I really felt this, insular feeling of warmth inside without being totally wrecked because alcohol, you know, before I could get to that point, you're, you know, you're wrecked. And so, but pain pills, all of a sudden it's like, Oh, wait, this is different. I can take these, get that feeling and still be able to function. Um, and of course, back in those days, there was no, nobody regulating those types of things. And so, um, that, really, you know, paved the way for me to actually be able to drink and do pills and, and still work and be somewhat successful for, for quite a few years. Um, but obviously when you're, you know, going from weekend to weekend as your reason for living and, um, doing the things you're doing during the week, you're, there's not a whole lot of, um, moral compassing going on. And so, you know, even being married and, and whatnot, I, you know, was still not, um, I was not a faithful, let's say husband. I was not a, a good husband or anything like that. Yeah. How did you meet your first wife? I was actually a bar manager and she was a waitress. And so, um, I, you know, came right out of college and got a job as a bar manager at like the, one of the biggest bars waterfront bars in the state of Florida. And, and, and that ended up being um, probably a mistake in hindsight because it was fed all of my addictions. Right. So it was basically a nightclub on the water in the very touristy part of Florida. And, you know, it was one of those things that on the surface people were like, yeah, you're living the dream. This is amazing. You know? And um, it just really paved the way for everything I was doing, the drugs, the drinking, um, sex, everything. It just for everything to multiply to get worse. And so met my wife, um, 
And so she was in that lifestyle as well. And it just sort of, just sort of fit. What did that mean to you at that point in your life to get married coming from, you know, the broken home parents divorced? What was it like for you to now, you know, find a woman that you at that time were just like, yeah, I want to spend the rest of my life with her. <laughs> I didn't think in those terms, man. I, I th- <laughs> we, we were, uh, no, I'm serious. We were out yeah. drinking one night and it was like, uh, the holidays, I think. And I was like, Hey, let's get married. And my brother married us. He did it as a notary. So, oh, it, okay. Okay. So, you know, it wasn't a lot of thought. I thought, you know, it was more like, I thought she was really attractive and that was, that fit the bill to make my father happy. And it was more about the image. Um, than anything else. Uh, not any long-term thinking really, to be honest. Yeah. So how long did that marriage last? It actually ended up lasting seven years, which in these types of scenarios is kind of a long time. Um, you know, we, yeah, we were together for seven years. Um, and, you know, we have a beautiful ch- son together and, uh, he's amazing. Um, uh, you know, even me putting my life together, I did it, you know, for him. Um, and so some, you know, that did come out of it. He's, you know, my son's phenomenal. He's just a great, great young man. And, um, I'm incredibly, incredibly blessed by, by his life and, and who he is, at, um, considering everything it could, how it could have went, but he, he's pretty outstanding. Um, yeah, we were married for seven years. He came into it at, yeah, I guess we were five years. Um, and it was right around then that I'd had my nervous breakdown and then things just really spiraled out of control because I, you know, when that happened, I lost my confidence. And, and once that happened, everything just fell apart. It just spiraled quickly. Um, because so much of what was holding my life together was just really just, you know, glue and staples basically. And when that came off, my life fell completely apart. It was, it was almost like, you know, it it was not a slow process. It was like, I had this nervous breakdown, you know, panic attacks induced, you know, psychosis end up on psych meds and then, you know, couldn't leave a house for six months because of paranoia. And, um, and you know, my wife was just like, I, I didn't sign up for this. And, you know, shortly after I was, um, out the door and then, you know, from there, everything spiraled very quickly, um, into, you know, homelessness and suicide and everything else. Yeah, man. So uh, again, a lot to unpack there, this nervous breakdown, you know, from the outside, like you said, uh, uh, on the surface level, it looked like you kind of had it all right. You had the attractive Mm -hmm. wife, you had, you know, this bar that you were managing, probably successful being in a touristy area. You had a child on the outside. People would be like, dude, you're living the dream. But what Mm -hmm. was going on up here? What was going on in your head that led to that nervous breakdown? Um, I think by nature, I'm somebody that is, um, built in a way that I'm con I constantly put pressure on myself and I, and I do to this day. And it's something I think the Lord is working on me through. I'm not real good at the rest thing. And so by natural progression, coming from a small town, I, everything I'd ever tried to do, I'd done and done well and, ex- and excelled at. But we all know that, you know, when you're running at that 
race that at that tempo or whatever, it's eventually going to fall apart. And so I, you know, ended up getting into, you know, running multiple restaurants and I just started putting more and more pressure on myself. And then, um, you know, started to have a failure here or a failure there and was not equipped to, to really handle that. And so, um, it just began, um, as a lot of pressure on myself that got me to where I was with the company I was with. I ended up leaving the restaurant I mentioned and going with like a, a large company and, um, it just became too much, um, the pressure. And I remember even at the time people around me saying, no one else is putting this pressure on you. This is just you. But I'd always been somebody that could say, I just accomplished that last thing. So look at what I've done now. I was never somebody that was okay with just saying, I'm just living life, you know? And so um, that's where it really began. That's where the nervous breakdown ended up just pushing me over the edge. And so how did you come out of that? Like you said, you went into you know the psych ward, put on medications, you were dealing with paranoia, six months, you couldn't leave the house. How did you come out of that, George? I really never did until, you know, everything happened, which I'm sure we'll get to. But, um, you know, I I never was able to get grounded um, again until I finally found Jesus. So it was, a few, you know, years of, um, yeah, you know, overall, I, I didn't say it earlier, but when I was in 10th grade, I attempted suicide for the first time. And so throughout my life, I've attempted suicide six times. And um, so it really, you know, when that happened, the nervous breakdown, my wife putting me out and me um, leaving and then ending up, you know, couch surfing or whatever, but then ended up to the point where I was, you know, homeless and suicidal. And there was a few, you know, suicide attempts in there that I never really came out of it. Um, until, you know, in and out of rehabs and, and eventually finding Jesus is how, how I came out of it because, um, you know, being somebody that drank heavily, all the meds that they tried to get me stable on obviously didn't work because of the drinking and, um, just, you know, my, I was incredibly prideful. That was part of how I, I really kept myself going. So I wasn't really trying to listen or, be humble and, and admit that one of these doctors or whatever might know more than me. So, um, I really didn't stand a chance basically. Yeah, man. Six suicide attempts. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. that's a lot, man. And it goes to show just where you were at in your life, right? Like people that go ahead and, and, and attempt suicide, they're at like the bottom of the barrel there, right? Like they're in a really, really dark place. And so for you to have been there six times, but yet here you are. So not that we need to go into like the details of each uh, attempt, but like, was it like looking back at it, were they like acts of God that the attempts didn't pan out or did you just end up having, you know, thankfully second thoughts? What, what happened there? Um, you know, acts of God, there wasn't a whole lot of second thoughts. Um, I look at it this way. I've come to realize that there are, you know, people that end up dying by suicide or attempting suicide um, just once or twice in their life. Um, and it's usually, you know, in the moment something's happening, 
Um, they say, you know, a very large majority of people that do die by suicide, um, it's something that they considered within minutes before they actually tried it. And it just happened. Right. So it's not like people, you know, we think through it um, as thoroughly as, as some people might think, but yeah. then there's people with suicidal ideations. And I fall more into this category where it's sort of an underlying thought process. That's always there. Um, and honestly, you know, Terry, there's days that it's still there. Like I'm, I'm not like considering it, but there's days that it's, it's, it's on the table. It's a potential. It's, it's something that could, you know, it's an option if need be. It's a, it's if emergency break glass and pull lever. Um, Mm. and so I don't know why. Um, and I don't, from what I know, you know, science and medical professions don't know why either. It's just some people have this underlying, um, this is how I'm going to die. Okay. Um, and I always did. And I don't, I don't necessarily know where it came from. I don't know if it's a word that was spoken over me. I don't know. Um, I just don't know that answer. I just know that I, it was something that was in me and it has been for a very long time that this is how it's going to end. And um, the best I can say about it is I can make the decision on when that is. And so, um, you know, a few of the times it's, it's, you know, multiple, many of the times it's, it's been a matter of, you know, closing your eyes for that, what you think is the last time and then waking up in a hospital bed days later and, and, and having to face the fact that you're still here and, 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 and the difficulty in understanding why you're still here when, you know, um, you didn't want to be and the problems you were trying to get away from that they're, they're still there and the, and the battle that, you know, your life is, is still there. So it's a, it's a, um, it's a real thing that a lot of people deal with, um, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. How, how do you fight that battle? George, you know, with those suicidal ideations coming here and there for you, how do you even, you know, saved belief, you know, in Christ and, and, you know, have that promised land life that we'll talk about uh, as we get into the interview here, how do you combat against those suicidal ideations? I can say um, with total sincerity that it's the life that I've built that there's just too many people that are counting on me. Um, if I didn't have, so, so I'm 16 years sober from alcohol this past couple of weeks ago. Right. And praise I can God. say with, yes, praise God. And I can say with total sincerity that um, if I would not have had the organizations that I've started counting on me, that would not be the case. So I, now, I'm not saying that this is what everybody who struggles needs to do. I'm just saying this is my answer. So please, anybody listening, um, speak to a professional. Don't don't take what I'm saying because this is just what's worked for me. Okay, I found God. God has delivered me and, and done amazing things in my life and revealed more and more of His heart for me. Um, but He's also given me an opportunity to build a life that not only is worth staying sober for, but it's necessary I stay sober for. So I've had these men that have counted on me and then I've had others that have counted on me and it just, it, my life matters to too many people as far as their life. And I don't mean it in some prideful, like, Oh, I'm important. I mean, as in 
There's people that are counting on me tomorrow to help put food on their table or roof over their head or give them the support that they need so that they don't die by suicide. So I can't, I can't turn, I can't end my life with too many people, all these people counting on me. So it's always what God has done in me um, that has given others the chance to live. That is the reason that I don't take my life. That is the reason that I'm able to find hope, that I'm able to um, move beyond whatever it is that I'm feeling. And it's different some each time, you know, there's circumstances that, you know, um, when I feel abandoned, when I feel betrayed, I, it tends to rise to the top. And that comes from what I've been through as a kid. Um, but like when those things happen, it, for whatever reason, like, not like I'm actually going to go commit suicide, but it just tends to rise to the top of like, I should just die and not be here. Like as sort of a trauma response is, is really more of what it is, but Honestly, it's, you know, um, a fleeting thing in those moments, but there, there's, you know, there's just these darkness waves that comes and sometimes it's demonic, um, very much so. And in those moments, I've learned to be aware of that and I can worship God and I can praise God and I can declare truth and it can get me out of that. But other times it's not that. And other times it's biological um, maybe it's been, um, I haven't rested in many days and I've, the food I've been eating is filled with carbohydrates and not a lot of protein and a lot of sugars. And that tends to get me into this depressive waves. So I think understanding how to help people through suicidal ideations, it's important to understand the role that biology plays, the supernatural plays, that trauma plays. And it's just life experience plays. And so it's more than just one of these things. It's all of these things combined. Um, and we as a church need to recognize that and stop just saying it fits. I'm really good with the supernatural, so we'll put it over here. Because yeah. it's not always that, right? And so, and on the same token, the medical professions think it's all over here. It's it's all just biology or whatever. And it's, no, it's not. It's, it's a person is a a whole person. And so they have many sides to them and they have many things happening. And so we need to see people for who they truly are, which is an individual filled with different parts. And so, yes. you know, and for me, I, I have a, a pretty decent understanding of who I am at these days. Yeah. And I think that's key. I, I'm going to read a quote directly from your book yeah. that goes along with what we're talking here, George. You say that suicidal thoughts are part of an identity disorder. It occurs when mm -hmm. people don't believe they're loved, don't believe they're forgiven, and don't believe there is hope and an abundant life waiting for them. And Amen. it sounds, it's, yeah, I mean, this is just bam, it, it's all right there. And it sounds like that's kind of the key for you now, even as you uh, fight, you know, the suicidal ideations that you can come back to that place of, I know who I am. I know, mm -hmm. you know, first and foremost, who I am in Christ, because that's what's most important. But I know the role that I play for, for my wife and for my children, for the people around me that I serve. Right. And, and, and it just goes to show the, the key of having who you are knowing who you are, uh, be so effective in fighting off those suicidal ideations. Amen. Yeah, it, it really is. And um, it's interesting, you know, we see where um, all of the different, you know, 
I guess, um, I don't want to say failures, but people have come up short, you know, whether it's the church or whether it's the medical field or whether, you know, it's individual leaders or, or whatnot. And it, it usually it revolves around the fact that we don't see all these different parts that play major roles in how we end up where we are in all things, in, including addiction and mental health and suicidal, suicidal ideations. And, you know, and by the same token, it's also the ability to see that our life is not static. It is constantly moving. So when we think what well, we want so badly for something to just be a point in time and that's how it is, but that's not reality. Reality is a point in time happens, but then it moves on and then other points in time happen. And so I can know my identity in Christ, but that doesn't mean a hundred percent that tomorrow I'll remember that identity because life is constantly moving. Okay. We, you know, I preached a sermon last weekend and, um, for the first time in, in a long time in front of people because of COVID, but, um, and it seemed to be well received, but yeah, I was worried because I was coming with some new thoughts and that is just that life is a journey and we're all on it. And often what doesn't work for people is when people want to put things into just points in time and this is who you are. And it's like, well, I'm that and right. There's the, the there's there's always the and after, and and how do we live that out? How do we live that out in a way that honors God and honors that new identity, but also recognizes the issues that I struggle with? All of us struggle with. Yeah, yeah, Amen, Amen. You talked about the journey, and you talked about the role that Jesus plays uh, in your sobriety and in and in your recovery or uncovery. But let's get into that. How did you come to Jesus, George? Well, kicking and screaming. No, I'm just kidding. That, that just seemed like the thing to say. <laughs> so it's like, hey, sometimes that's what it takes. Yeah, it is. Um, okay, so I should state that, you know, growing up, I grew up Catholic and I always knew there was a God. So I think when we think about people coming to Jesus, you have to recognize some people that are, you know, atheist and other faiths and all the different roles that we, who we could be. Right. So I've always believed in a God, never, ever to my, I can't even begin to comprehend how a person could think there's not a God. Okay. Uh, I don't know why I've just, that's just who I am. I'm just like, yeah, no, of course we were created. I don't for a second think it was a big bang somewhere. I mean, if it was a big bang, it's that somebody created the big bang. So it's like, yeah. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I don't know, but there's a, there's a God somewhere, but he hates me. And I was told that every single day of my life and that I'm doomed to hell and that, um, you know, all these things. So God was real. Um, did not know who Jesus was, definitely didn't know Jesus was God, definitely didn't know there was a salvation principle. I went to, you know, I was a Catholic, and I didn't pay a whole heck of a lot of attention in the Catholic, you know, churches I was in. So I was there, but that's all I knew, and I wasn't paying a lot of attention there. I, was, I can relate. I <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm here. Um, I did go to confirmation classes until they kicked me out. So I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> I asked too many <laughs> questions about the number of the beast. I, yeah, I'll never forget the. the, the oh, really? The, yes. <laughs> it's a long time ago. I was like, I don't know. I was being a wise guy. So anyway, so um, <laughs> I was asked to leave and not come back. But I, you know, so I've always believed in God and. Um, but not this whole Protestant salvation story. 
and didn't know it. So I had um, attempted suicide, um, and it, it was, you know, a really dark time because somehow I ended up in a psychiatric ward in Tampa. And I'm not from Tampa. I, I live here now, but at the time I'd never been here. I was from St. Pete, which is um, on the other side of the bridge. So somehow I ended up here. I, maybe a lot of times if there's no psychiatric wards um, allowed, that's where you end up. So I, I'm walking out of the psychiatric ward and I remember that my father lives in Tampa. And so I literally have nowhere to go. I mean, I got bandages on from the suicide attempt. Um, wandering down a street and I, um, call my dad, which I did not call my father ever. And so I called my dad and I, I knew he lived in Tampa and I asked, I said, listen, I just gotten out of the hospital and I, I didn't have anywhere to go. Could he help me? And he answered the phone, which I was, you know, happy that he at least answered the phone. And so um, but he he said that he unfortunately was in Georgia at the time and he couldn't, you know, really give me a hand at this moment because he his new wife. I didn't even know he was married. He, he was up in Georgia at her parents. And so um, I was like, OK. And so Florida daytime hot. So I go walking into um, I get off the phone with him and I walk into a grocery store um, to get some water. And lo and behold, but who do I walk into? my father. And so he's standing in this grocery store. He had lied to me because he didn't want to help me. And so, and I, and I remember like seeing him and just being like, you've got to be effing kidding me. And him just being like, well, and he didn't even, you know, in hindsight, he didn't even follow me outside, but whatever I, you know, and I just walked out of there and so, I mean, I had just attempted suicides, you know, within 24 hours before and here this happens. And I'm like, you, this is just, you gotta be kidding me. So I cried out to God and I said, you know, God, just kill me, right? Like either kill me or do something different because this is just, this is ridiculous. There's just no way you're doing this for your own like enjoyment or humor. I know you're real. And I know that you don't, I'm not that important. I'm not, I don't think that like, I am the the joke of the day for you. So do something, Either, you know, kill me or do something different. And I walked a few more feet and those, I had a, my phone rang and um, it was this guy that I had met in a, one of the many rehabs I'd been in uh, over the last couple of years. Um, and he's like, Hey man, um, you okay? And I was like, um, I, I'm not really. That's why do you ask that? And he's like, well, I just felt like, you know, I was praying and I felt like the Lord tell me to reach out to you that you were in trouble. Hmm. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Wow. wow. So, um, <laughs> Yeah. So he came and uh, picked me up and took me to um, this old man named Pops. And Pops ended up teaching me about grace and salvation and the love of the Father and ended up being the, I still call him Pops today, this old man um, 
he was just at my house. I wrote about him in the book and he, I wrote, you know, he's came by my house last week just to get, pick it up. And just this little old man who's really uncouth at times and says kind of grumpy things. And, but the man saved my life, man. Um, he taught me about Jesus and, you know, more importantly showed me the love of God. Yeah. And, uh, and God really used him to save my life. Um, and he did multiple times, multiple times. So Jesus became real from, from that moment forward. Wow. So powerful, yeah. man. So powerful. I'm, I'm curious for you, George, obviously growing up, not a healthy relationship with your father, not a healthy view of what love is. So how mm-hmm. did you come to accept the love of your heavenly father? You know, um, and I do relate with, I do understand how some people, I mean, working with broken men, I know that a lot of times they can't do that. They're just like, um, my father abused me, locked me in a closet. There's no way I can talk about father God. And, and this is one of those miraculous things where I ran to the love of the father. I I knew my father. I knew my earthly father was jacked up, and he was no way, shape, or form like God the Father. So, I was eager to have a father in heaven that was filled that role that I had longed for for so long, that I had desired in my heart for so long. So, when I found that out, there was like, okay, I'm all in because this is what I've wanted. This is, this is how it's supposed to be. I mean, I I've seen, you know, TV families with a loving father and mother. And even though I know those are fake and they're TV shows, I just know that there's, there's gotta be a reality to what a creator father is supposed to be like. And so I ran to that and embraced that. What changes did you notice start to take place within you as you let Jesus just love on you? You know, it's amazing that you can fight for so long to get. Listen, I never thought in my wildest dreams that I would be sober. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I had done altar calls. I had done, I'd done all that. I've done everything, and I just did not think there would ever come a day that I could walk by a liquor store. Um. But when the love of the father really just settled, you know, settled in and took over to just never desire to drink again um, after many failed attempts, don't get me wrong, but that is just nothing short of a uh, miraculous movement of God in my life. Um, The way that I view women to, to, to be a person um, because I see, you know, a lot of the men I work with still, it's like, oh yeah, I, I accept Jesus. And, and, and we have really, you know, the men I work with anyways, we really strict on how you date and who you can date and all that type of stuff. And it's because they don't know what type of a person they would want to be with. And so when I found, you know, found God, I, you know, went six years abstinent, you know, um, that's, a really big miracle because, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, I came from a whole other side of things. And so just, you know, the way that I view women, the respect that I have for women, um, 
the way I view other human beings, um, there's just been so many powerful things. How, how I view race and how I be, I, I view the minority, um, you know, minority people that are abused and, and enslaved and, um, just, just with a different type of compassion and, and empathy and understanding that could only be from God. Because, um, there's some things that we're taught in, in Christianity that, okay, yeah, I shouldn't do that. That's like a, almost like a rule, but there's other things that is God changing you inside out. And, um, I, man, I was a prideful, I didn't care about anyone or anything, or I didn't think about race or poverty or any of this stuff. It just, it was not on my radar, man. I was just not. Um, and so just God just really moving inside of me to be this, uh, just become this um, advocate for him and, and his love to those that are completely um, don't know that. And so just really, you know, understanding how um, every time I tried to be religious or tried rules, I fell. But when it was really God, his Holy Spirit in me moving, um, it changed me. It transformed me as a person to become something completely different than I ever, ever would have been, ever. And, and it's just powerful. Yeah. And that's what it's about, man. Right. Like it's that transformation. It's becoming a new creation and being born Mm -hmm. again. I mean, the George I'm talking to now compared to the George that was, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, however long it would have been, it'd probably be pretty crazy for that George to see this George right now. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's, it it can only be God. Oh, it's, so it's yeah my god my life is so it's only god it's just like it's just and that's what you know the 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 part i love about it is that like it doesn't matter about you know i see so many other organizations that work with people in addiction or whatever and they want and they they want the person to change the way they dress and the way that they you know cut your hair and shave your face and carry a bible around and all these things and it's like those are all just behaviors and and the person's going to resent you for that. But the reality is, you know, John the Baptist, you know, think how crazy he was. God doesn't care about that stuff and he cares about your heart. So you want to, you want to go eat camel, you know, dung and honey and whatever, just be like, John, just go do it, man. (laughs) You're right. But just love me with your heart. So I can have tattoos and I can occasionally drop a curse word. And it's like, this got nothing to do about what God is doing in my life. Because at the end of the day, I know that tonight somebody will probably be knocking on my door at 10, 10 o'clock at night, asking for a couple dollars as you know, usually happens in a poverty ridden neighborhood. And it's not going to bother me where I would never have been in a neighborhood like this before God. Yeah, But now it's like, if we can be like God to somebody and they can see Jesus in you, well, then by all means, man, you do what you can to make that happen. And that's, that's just, it's just all God, man. It's all a God thing. Amen. So then George, let's talk about what you do. You, you talked about living in a poverty stricken neighborhood. Tell us about the work that you do in your community. Sure. I, um, so 
my wife and I live in the inner city of Tampa, and we moved to a high crime and, and high poverty area um, 11 years ago. And um, to be the incarnational spirit of Jesus so that people, you know, could see Jesus that otherwise would not, where, you know, we just really struggled with um, the idea that, you know, mega churches or whatever, you know, they build them on the outside of town where people that are really poor can't get there, okay? And so, um, what about people that don't drive or don't have the ability to even know somebody that could give them a ride? I mean, it's it's like there's people that need to be reached by the loving spirit of God and Jesus, and, and they're in our own cities. And so, we moved here, and we we love it. We've been here all these years, and we've seen life transformation in the people that know us. And it's not through, you know, handing out tracks or anything like that. It's through just being a consistent person in their lives. We're you know faithful to what you say you're going to do. What your yes mean yes, your no mean no. Be present to try to represent what the Christian values would be when somebody all of a sudden is you know, thinking of different things, you know, that um, need a Christian perspective and not by forcing it, but by being just the Spirit of God, knowing, listen, I, I just love you and I just want God to love you and you to you to get to know that love. And so we, you know, we, we've seen miracle after miracle. We work with, my wife has an organization, the Just Initiative, that she works with women and children facing homelessness and um, does all kinds of stuff for, for kids and for women. It's just, she's power. She's the real powerful one in the family. And, and of course I work, you know, um, with men in addiction and, and also work with women and women and children and whatever. I'm trying to educate people on really the effects of trauma in their life and the role that it plays in, in how, you know, um, our mental health is and how our addiction is and suicide and, just trying to educate the world on a different, better way to really walk with people through things as, you know, recovery is really for everybody. It's really, you know, something that we're all in anyways. And so what role could faith play in how we all recover if we all did it in a way that was more like Jesus? I love it. I love it, man. And so that's a natural segue into the book, The Uncovery, Understanding the Power of Community to Heal Trauma. So, George, what is the uncovery? Yeah, I think um, so. The idea of recovery, okay, is always centered around how do we, I want to recover the person I was before my addiction or before my mental health issues or um, whatever, fill in the blank. But it's sort of a misnomer in the fact that re- you're recovering the person that wasn't good enough to keep you sober, keep you stable, keep you happy in the first place. So what if we tried to take it back to like, what did, what did God call us before the foundations of the world? What identity did he give us before the foundations of the world? Didn't God say we were holy, perfect, and blameless? And isn't God the same today, tomorrow, forever, always? And so let's uncover that identity. Let's uncover who God says we are. Let's uncover who God's always told us who we were. 
Because when we uncover that identity, it's the identity that God has given us, the destiny that God has called us to, that we can begin to live a life of whatever, recovery, if that's what you want to call it, but living a life that is fulfilled and lived out, that brings the glory of God, that that brings transformation, that completely is supernatural, but it's all based on what He's already done and what He's already called us. And so we get away from recovery being, how do I achieve something to how do I accept something? So I'm accepting this identity instead of achieving this identity. It's something that God has already done. All we have to do is uncover that. And so it's more of a stripping away of things than here's a bunch of things you do. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah, no, I love it. And and in the book, you talk a lot about uh, the differences between what you do, you know, with the Timothy Initiative, with the Sober Truth Project, compared to what an AA, you know, mm-hmm. or 12-step program would do. So what, what are some of the differences between those two modalities? I think the, the, at the heart of it, the biggest difference is, and, and it's, you know, I'm not against 12 steps, so don't hear that. I think that there's a lot of real beneficial and powerful things there. That's not what I'm saying. But they are basically behavior modification examples or tools for behavior modification. This is how I change how I act. We want to change who we are by becoming who we already are, right? So it's it's a difference of... Um, just that change in behavior, which is a good thing, but trying to figure out who we truly are, which is a totally different thing. So when you're just changing behavior, so the example I like to give is, um, in a a 12 step meeting, they're trying to teach you how to not drink or not do drugs. And what I want to do is I want to find out why you needed to do drugs or drink in the first place. And so if we don't actually understand the cause of why we do what we do, we're just going to change behaviors and we're going to still have this thing in us. It's there, right? Because I can't get healed because no one's addressed it. But everybody that's in addiction, that has mental health issues, all suicidal issues, it's, there's always a root. What happened to you? Okay. Because when we just focus on don't drink today and don't use today and, oh, you relapsed, well, what what did you do wrong? What were your steps before you relapsed? Just focusing on those things, which don't get me wrong, it's important, but I, it's because I don't know who I am. And it, it doesn't, I haven't addressed what happened to me in the first place. Why everybody that's in hardcore addiction, almost everybody, has been through hardcore trauma in their life. And so it's almost like you can trace back the lineage. When did you first start not feeling at home in your own skin? Because that matters, right? But most people don't know that. They don't recognize that. They don't see that. And they don't realize the power and the authority that what happened to you in those early days can still hold over you today. And so you can work your butt off on your 12 steps and and all of that. And that's great. And it's a lot of hard work. But if you don't address that other thing, all you're trying to do is another form of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If you're not going to fix or heal or let the father in to heal that moment that you were abused as a child then everything you do as an adult, it, you're just going to, you're working to just not acknowledge that pain. 
And that, I mean, the truth is like, why do we use in the first place? Why do we high in the first place? It's because we're running from a pain. We have an inability to regulate our internal systems in a way that can let us feel comfortable. And so that's a pain. And that pain is what will keep us moving in the wrong direction if we don't address it. Man, this is so needed. This is so needed, George. Even just going through some of the forewords at the beginning of the book, I think it was Sean Bowles who said, you know, this is the book I've been waiting for. And even just being in the mental health field myself, like I fully back that up because that that's what it is all about, George. Like you said, it's getting to the root of it. And what is the root? It's it's the identity crisis there. It's mm-hmm. not knowing who you are. Uh, and like you said, most likely because of trauma that you've experienced. And and George, let's get into that. Some people, they, they think that trauma is just the people that go off to war or are cops or like there's there's this one catastrophic event that happens in their lives and that's trauma. But that's that's not the only definition of trauma. What is your definition of trauma? Yeah, for me, my definition of trauma, it's not what happens to you. It's what happens inside of you because of what's happened to you. And that's a big difference. So, yes, Obviously, forms of physical violence and rape and torture and all that stuff is trauma. Absolutely. Yes. But you can be psychologically traumaed and and that can have just as big of an impact because what they found, what's interesting, and this isn't discussed a lot, is the pain variable, which is that pain receptors, when run through an MRI, you could break your leg, but the pain receptors in the MRI, the same ones fire up when your heart breaks. So, you know, emotional pain fires internally the same way as physical pain, which can tell us why, in just that example alone, why emotional pain that is maybe on the outside, not traumatic, but internally is traumatic. And so what can happen to, I mean, and, and not to make it sound trite, but, you know, to be a eight-year-old whose mother forgets to pick you up from school, okay, that can be a trauma that for the rest of your life, you you like fear people not coming to get you and you don't know why, or you always have to be the person who drives, and, and, you know, they're like these little things that we do that we think is, oh, that's just me. Well, it's probably you because of something that's happened to you and you don't even know it. And it's, and it's, it's, if somebody was to take you back and say, Holy Spirit, will you come into this moment with this person that, they, that so they can see that their mother did not forget to pick them up, that she loves them and it was just a mistake, whatever. And, and God can heal that. And then the next day that person doesn't have that feeling anymore. Yeah. I mean, who? why aren't we sharing this? Why is this not known? And, I, and honestly, I think it's not known because here's the problem, Terry, is that when we start talking about a person's trauma, a lot of times our parents are in the same church as us yeah. or our pastors. And the cause of the trauma is often right around us. Yeah. And so you got a twofold. You got the parent that doesn't want to hear it. And the child is like, I don't want to betray my, you know, I don't want to say something bad about my parents, right? You got people like me that like, we've just been through so much, we're going to let it out. But then the littler things on the surface, people, let's just not go there. But the reality is it affects people just as deeply and it causes them to do things that, listen, I always say this, it's like when people come to me because there's something they can't stop doing, I'm like, 
there's a good chance there's some type of inner healing that needs to happen that, you know, revolves around a trauma, a traumatic event that happened to you as a kid that you need to process back. We need to think through when this first happened. What are some of the experiences as a, you know, a child that you've been through? And, and there's a good chance that like you've spent a lot of time in 12 step meetings or in other types of meetings where you're trying to stop doing this behavior, but it's all in this, it's all in your story. It's all somewhere in your story. There's a narrative that needs to be retold of your life. And we can make a difference just by letting people know that. Yeah, so good. So good. I love what you said earlier, George, about, you know, we're not talking about this because especially in the churches, our parents are in the church, our pastors in the church, and they're often sources of trauma. The church has not been good at dealing with mental health. I think you and I can both agree with that, right? Like, and I love the church, don't get me wrong, but we got a long ways to go. You know, in in an area where we should be a leader and and a a path blazer, we're often fifteen years behind the curb on on a lot of this stuff. And yeah. mm-hmm. and there's a lot of churches too that if you know they hear depression or anxiety or trauma, they may chalk it up to well, that's just a sin issue or that's just a a demonic thing. Uh, it's just a spiritual thing. What are your thoughts on that, George? Well. You know, 2,000 years ago, Jesus was asked, why is this man blind? Is it because something he did or something his parents did? <laughs> so Jesus, like, was dealing with this question back then. Yep. And, and so it's like, it doesn't even matter who sinned. It's like, it came so I may be glorified, so, you know, in his healing. So we, let's still get the person healed, and we'll worry about that sin thing after. It's like, that's not the point, right? The point is... How do, is the glory of God revealed and the glory of God is revealed through that person having sight again? And so, yeah, I think, you know, it's funny because I think yeah, there's a lot of times that trauma or, or things happen to us that does cause us to sin. And it's really hard, especially if you're the person who's been sinned against, for you to not think that why they are the way they are is because of a sin issue. But it, it doesn't negate the healing that needs to happen. And that goes both ways. It's in, and I always say this to, you know, abusers as well. Yes, you were abused and we need to heal that, but you still are responsible for what you did because of your abuse. So it goes both ways, right? It's just, yep. it's a, it's a better understanding of, um, regardless of what sin happened or didn't happen, the healing needs to happen. Okay, and only God can do that, and that is the glory of God, and it will be, He will be glorified in it. We're not, you know, called to tell, make a person stop sinning without healing them. They have to be healed because they may not be possible to stop sealing, you know, sinning without that healing. So it, I think. I think twofold, like that's sort of my answer to that first part of your question, but the, the part of why do churches do this, I think it's. Listen, working, you're a counselor, you know as well as I do, dealing with people in this on this level is it can be tiring. It can yep. it can wear you out. And I interviewed six local pastors last year and and on my podcast and I said to every one of them, what do you think the role of the church in mental health is? And almost uniformly, I think maybe one of them said 
basically stay out of it. Let the professionals do what the professionals do, which I followed up with. Well, then how, (laughs) how do you explain passages that Paul writes where he says, we are fully equipped to handle everything in, you know, heavenly realms. So how can you preach that and then say you're not equipped? And yeah. you know, no one has that answer because it's easier to just not deal with the hard people to deal with is the reality. And if my answer, go pray about it, or it's a sin issue, cuts this conversation off, well, then that's what I'm going to, it's it's sort of my get out, get out of jail free card instead of, you know, recognizing, and I, and I do like to think that the church is waking up somewhat to this because of people like yourself, because of people like me that are talking about it. And it, and, and now with social media, a lot of the congregants have a voice where they can say, like, I was at this church and this happened to me. Fair or unfair, sometimes it's unfair, but sometimes maybe fair. I don't know. But it, it, the reality is, you know, pastors are definitely being called to, you know, called to the, to the ranks more. So I, I think that the reality is it's just been easier to just not deal with these things or to just say, you know, the, the pat answers of sin or, or, you know, go pray about it, but don't want to actually spend that time with a person um, that is really challenging and really tiring. And, you know, my answer to that is we need to learn a different set of boundaries. We've had a set of boundaries, which is just basically like, Nobody, you don't help anybody, but we, we need to, there's got to be a, there is a boundary. I don't think every pastor should deal with a schizophrenic that's in a meltdown, but, right. but there are, let's, that's the worst case. Maybe there's some in between that we could, we could work with. Right. So, yeah. 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 Like you said, I think it's, it's the church becoming more mindful of some of this stuff. And instead of running away from the battle, let's run towards it. Let's, let's. Let's love on these people. Let's love on our people, right? These people are in our church. What other maybe practical advice could you give, George, to pastors, to leaders in the church to uh, learn more about mental health or to step into that role more? I want to say um, this this one big thing, and that is that there is this power of deep listening that we don't actually have anymore. Um, and it is just so powerful to learn how to listen again and or maybe for the first time for some people, but let's just, let's go with again, but the ability to sit with another person in their garden of Gethsemane moment and, and listen. Okay. Jesus says, you know, in the garden of Gethsemane, he asked those guys to come and pray with him. He says, pray with me. And they go and they fall asleep and he wakes them up and he says, you couldn't pray with me for a couple hours. Okay. Yeah, we'll try again. And and then they fall asleep again. So then he just leaves them and he goes up on the hill and cries out to his father. Why did Jesus ask them to pray with him? It wasn't like their prayers were going to be more powerful than his prayers. And they were going to be able to take that cup from him. He just wanted them to pray with him. And this is Jesus, by the way, because he didn't want to be alone in his pain. He wanted to be able to look into the eyes of somebody he called friend and, and and know that he was not alone in this most painful moment. They couldn't change what was about to happen, 
They couldn't make a difference in what was about to happen, but they could be present so he was not alone. That's the power of deep listening. And if we could just learn to sit with people, even if we, you know, a lot of pastors don't like to say, I don't know that answer. But if we could just get more comfortable at saying, I don't know that answer, but I'll sit with you and I'll be with you. And and I promise to walk with you to find the person who does. That would go a really, really long way. And I, and I think in today's world, I think there's so many resources out there to really help people understand um, mental health. That it is that it, dereliction of duty if of, if a pastor is not educating himself on this, it just is a complete dereliction of duty. And that I just really encourage any pastor listening. You will answer to God one day for the people that you lead. Are you prepared to do that? I am. I'm fully prepared. Are you prepared to stand before Father God and say, this is what I did with who you gave me to lead? I I shucked them off on the next best person. I couldn't take a weekend away from golf or away from my kids to take a course on mental health certification when every other, lots of other pastors were. Are you prepared to do that? Because you'll answer for that, you know? Um, There's just so many resources to help pastors learn to educate them. Don't fear the worst of being like, now you're going to have to deal with the schizophrenics. It's like, no, if God called you to that, though, would you? You Would you if God called you to it? I'm not saying he is, but would you? And so there's just all of these different, you know, things that we can do as pastors, as leaders, to try to really come to understand what our people are going through. And and probably the the bigger thing is you might not realize it, but you're probably going through some stuff yourself and this will help you even in your own, your own journey. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's just so much to be said about once we start learning and put letting down the walls of, of, you know, protecting our identity of, of self of importance. Right. Because here, you know, I told a friend of mine not too long ago, I want to help in the remainder of my life. You know, I want to help keep the same Bible verses we've been using, but we've been using them tritely. I want to like, I don't want to get rid of them, but I want to make them real to today's world where it is, we are new creations, but it's okay to say you're a new creation, but that might involve some mental health and some inner healing and all of that along the way. It's, you know, so many people are afraid that like, if we're having this conversation that we don't think, you know, we don't believe that you're a new creation or that you can renew your mind or, you know, do all things through Christ who strengthens you. No, we do. We just mean it on a deeper level. I just mean there's, there's other work to be done in there. It's not a magical like potion, snap your fingers and now it's done. It just means, yeah. You can you are this new creation, but let's get rid of some of that other stuff through some maybe therapy or some narrative reworking or talking, deep listening, deep talking with one another. Not just say the verse and then it happens. There's more to it than that. And and I really want to like, you know, help people understand. I'm not trying to dispel those verses or get rid of them. I want to empower them, right? Empower those verses with the actual like spirit of God that is all almost always seen through each other. Right. We, yeah. we walk with each other and the power of God is seen through each other, not just, 
say the verse and there it is. It's like, man, no, it's like in each other. That's why community is so important. It's like we don't heal alone. We don't heal in a vacuum. We heal in a community where people can walk alongside us and support us when we need it or tell us we're wrong when we're wrong or right when we're right. And, and, and we can, you know, have this, um, trialogue. Like, uh, I saw this word today, trialogue, this meaning instead of dialogue, it's a trialogue where it's you and me are having a trialogue right now because the Holy spirit is present. He's here. I love that. That's so awesome. we're dialoguing, but it's a trialogue because the Holy Spirit is here. And and as we speak to each other in the trialogue, the Holy Spirit is given revelation through you to me and me to you. And out of that, God is glorified in each of our lives because we walk away from this conversation different. And that's God in a trialogue conversation over Zoom, over whatever we're on, you know, states apart because God is that powerful and that amazing. And now it's like revelation can be given. Yeah. I just, I love that, man. Love it. Dude, That that's amazing. That's amazing. And I want to go back to what you said, because I, I fully believe that as well, as far as the deep listening. You know, I, I, I talk to my clients about active listening. You know, we're just sitting with the person and we're focused on what they're saying so that we can understand it instead of focused on what are we going to say in response yeah. to that? You know, mm-hmm. that's, I, and I feel like everybody needs to learn that skill because we're all everybody. selfish by nature and, mm-hmm. and we, we, we immediately go to, well, what's going to, what's my response going to be? And when people are hurting, when people are, are just in that spot where they need to talk and, and, and to just get stuff off their chest, we don't need to respond. We just need to be present. We just mm-hmm. need to listen. And if we're going to respond, maybe all it is is just a validation statement. Hey, it makes yeah. sense why you're going through what you're going through. Or, you know, it makes sense why you're feeling what you're feeling, you know, to just let them know that they're not alone. And so, man, George, I I, I just think you just hit the nail on the head there. Yeah, uh, the last the last thing uh, as part of the uncovery that I wanted to talk about was the the statement of living a promised land life. So, George, talk to us about what is that? What is a promised land life? Well, you know, it's interesting because in the book of, you know, Exodus and, and Joshua, we see these people get into the promised land and they still got to fight battles. And so... um this is, you know, I just, I, I saw that before the book, you know, we wrote the book in it. And so I came to, to Britt, my co-author, and I was like, man, this is what I teach. Would you think we it'll work? And she's like, oh my God, I've never thought about that. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I think as Christians, we always think, you know, I'm going to make it to the promised land. And it's like, it's easy, but it's like, they get to the promised land and a few different things happen. Like one, you know, the half tribe of Manasseh says, can we stay on this side? You know, like you got tribes saying they want to stay on this side of the river, even after they go in and fight the battles in the promised land. Interesting. So, you know, you got people that get right up to the promised land and, and still are like, "Eh, it's not for me. But then those that do make it in, could you walk around this building seven times and then blow your horns? And then also after that, you got to fight these guys and these guys. The point is in the promised land, we fight some of the biggest battles, but now we know what we're fighting for. Now we know that we've already won. Now we know that, you know, we've already won the battles. We know what we're fighting for. And we know that by us fighting this, that even more people can enter the promised land. 
So there's a more, there's a, there's a, there's a more of an importance. Uh, there's a heavier weight to it because we've the crossing over into the promised land is it's not this, I made it. It's not like, Oh, I'm retired now and I can just hang out and play cards with old people. No, it's like you made it in the promised land. That means some of your biggest battles are still to come, but now you know you've already won. You've already won. And that's so powerful. Yeah, you're getting me fired up just talking about it, George. Like it, I, like you said, yeah, like just because we get in the promised land doesn't mean that it's just a country club where we just put our feet up and play golf. Like, no, there's battles to be faced. But man, if we can get through those battles, it's going to be mm-hmm. worth it. And we're going to have everything that God wants us to have. And yeah. Man, just this book in general, guys, you need to go out and get it. Uh, George, you said you wrote it with your co-author, Britt Eaton. How did you guys link up? Um, Yeah, we actually linked up. Um, I was teaching um, Brad McCoy, a friend of mine. He did this uh, online thing in the beginning of the pandemic, uh, Fuel Live. We're bringing people together and different teachers. And I was one of the teachers one of the weeks. And um, Britt had, um, she was a moderator, but it was really, you know, so I met her there, but then the, the Lord was really working on me about my own suicide attempts at that time where I had never really talked about it. It was always just my addiction. Um, and just felt like the Lord's, you know, I, I'd wrote a blog and, um, had a lot of response from it and God, and just felt like God say, you know, that response is because it's time for you to write a book. And I was like, yeah, okay, God, well, if it's time, then you make it happen. Cause I got no money and I don't, it's, I, I'm ADHD. So I'm all over the place. So yeah, you make <laughs> it happen. And, uh, he made it happen. I yeah. reached out to, you know, felt like the Lord prompted me to reach out to Brit. We did a zoom call where I just talked about, you know, Hey, do you think this is even a book? I didn't even, wasn't trying to hire her or anything. And she's like, oh my God, I think it's multiple books and and I have to be involved. And and so we hit it off. And next thing you know, we write a book over Zoom. We we'd only met each other not until like a year and a half later in person. So um just every, you know, once a week for hours and hours and hours, just hanging out on Zoom and and talking through um, all my experiences. And, you know, the book is primarily my experiences in my life. And just but really was helpful for me to be able to share with her like is this you know crazy it's like even what we were just talking about with the promised land life that came out of me talking about being sober having you know success in ministry and whatnot and then my brother and my sister the same year dying from drug overdoses and I had been sober a few years at that point and a pastor and a counselor and um, both times, you know, seven months apart, I was not talking to each, either one of them and having to live with that. And, you know, people being like, Oh no, you're going to relapse. You know, you're going to do this. You're going to do that. And just being like, no. Um, And so really this idea of like, that was, I was already in the promised land at that point, but just, how she really like would help me flesh that out. Like, yeah, that's the battle after, you know, and people need to know that like the biggest battles I've fought have been after being in the promised land. And so just really, you know, really working together to really flesh out some of these ideas 
that um, I'd had in my head and, and used for years with my men, but couldn't put to actual like make sense type of words. Yeah. Well, shout out to Brit for helping you write this book. You guys did a great job. Where can people find this book, George? Uh, yeah, they can find it um, on Amazon and uh, shoptheword.com. Also, um, we have a website for it, theuncoverybook.com, where you can uh, go there. And I, I believe somebody said it said Barnes & Nobles as well. So, yeah, so all those usual places. We have an audio version coming out, hopefully, um, in the next month, too. We finished recording a couple weeks ago, so excited about that. Yeah, yeah. Praise God. Guys, go check it out. It's amazing. You will be blessed by it. George, where can people go to find you if they want to get a hold of you? Yeah, um, come on down to Ybor City, (laughs) Tampa, Florida. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, man. Um, Yeah, I have, uh, you can go to SoberTruthProject.org. That is the the organization I started on, you know, really educating people on mental health, suicide, and addiction, and trauma. Um, And then you can also check out the TimothyInitiative.org, which is the organization I started that works with men. um, That's phenomenal. And um, you can find me on, you know, Facebook at at, uh, georgeawood.com. Well, actually, Facebook is uh, Tattooed Pastor GW. Um, And then my social media is also Tattooed Pastor GW. So if you go to Instagram or Twitter or any of that stuff, so... Yeah, we figured tattooed pastor. And the reason is it's kind of funny. I'd go to the like, I'd meet like people at conferences or something. And without fail, you know, you you talk to them on the phone or something, and you're like, Yeah, I'm the guy you met, you know, I'm the one with all the tattoos. And I'm like, Oh yeah, the tattooed pastor guy. Yeah, I know you are. So I was like, I was talking, I think we may even been Trevor, and I was like, Man, I should just that should be my tag, like tattooed pastor, because I love tattoos. And he goes, Dude, totally. So tattoo, you can also go to tattooedpastor.com for my website. And then, yeah, social media is all, you know, at Tattooed Pastor GW. Dude, I love it. When I first searched for you, that came up, the Tattooed Pastor. My first thought was, that is the most BA name that I've ever come across. <laughs> and I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm all for tattoos. Yeah. I'm all for like kind of the like non-traditional ways of just showing Jesus and doing church. And so... You're right up my alley in that way. George, last question for you. As you look back on your life and you reflect on the goodness of God in it, what comes to mind? Honestly, I'm just blown away by just the way that God has continually met me and continually reminded me of who I am. And he's been doing it forever. I just didn't see it or didn't hear it. Um the way that he always would let me know that I was not alone and in the pain and the suffering, he's always been there and and he's always been speaking. Um, and I just can't believe that I've done some really jacked up stuff in my life. And, and I still continue to sometimes where I'm like, what am I thinking? And God is still there and he still, he still meets me. And it's, it's just so amazing how he is not about, us being perfect or doing the right thing. He, it's, it's, it's a very unconditional love that it's like him telling me, no, you're my guy. I, all right. You're my guy, regardless of this, your latest jacked up thing you've done. So remember who you are. And, and I just can't believe I missed it for as many years as I did. But, um, I know that 
you know, I don't miss it as often as I once did. Yeah, man. George, it's been an honor having you on the show. I'm so glad Trevor connected us. And uh, yeah, man, me we'll, too. we'll have to stay in touch. And as we're talking, the thing that keeps going through my mind is I'm glad you're here. Six suicide attempts, each one failed. Yeah. I'm glad you're here, man, because God is using you in mighty ways. You are literally being the hands and feet of Jesus in your community, in your neighborhood. And man, I, I'm just so glad you're here. Man, I, I've, I've really, really enjoyed our time. Um, this has been, this has been, and I'm not just saying this, this has been just amazing. I've just really enjoyed our time, our, our conversation. And I just really thank you for those very, very kind words, man. It means the world to me. All right, man. Well, you enjoy the rest of your day. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely, man. Thank you, brother. You have a great one, dude. Guys, if you don't see Jesus and George's story, I don't know what else to tell you. It's amazing to see the transformation that's taken place in his life because of Jesus. And now he gets to lead people into the same freedom, breakthrough, and recovery he's experienced because of Christ. The work he and his wife are doing in Tampa is inspiring, and I'd encourage all of you to seek to make a similar impact where you live. And like George and I talked about, Sometimes just simply actively listening to somebody and being there for them in their time of need will mean more than you'll ever know. So people, make sure to go out and buy George and Britt's book, The Uncovery, Understanding the Power of Community to Heal Trauma. It really is a powerful and fresh way to look at recovery, and it's legitimately helped me shift my perception of trauma, addiction, and healing when working with clients. But you don't need to be a therapist or a counselor to be blessed by this book, because we're all recovering from something in our lives, and this book will leave you feeling motivated to live a promised land life. So go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever else you get your books and buy a copy now. And if you guys have any questions for George about his testimony, send me a DM, shoot me an email at twterrypod at gmail.com, or use the hashtag AskTWT on social media, and we'll have him answer a few. Give George a follow on Instagram at TattooedPastorGW. Again, I love that name. Check out his Sober Truth Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and go to GeorgeAWood.com for more information on George. And I'll post all these links in the show notes, so make sure to go check them out. That's it for this week, but I'll be back next week with another testimony. In the meantime, live your life in such a way that glorifies God and kicks Satan's butt. Peace.